So a few weeks ago, I had a birthday. And so um, what I'm trying to do is, and I've been doing it for the last three decades, is every time I hit a milestone, I want to learn something new. I want, because I've, I've been told, I don't know if it's true or not, that if you keep learning new stuff, it helps your mind to stay sharp. So far, that theory is proving wrong in my case. But nonetheless, I'm working at it anyway. And so when I turned 30, I learned how to whistle through my fingers real loud so my boys would know when it was time to come home. When I turned 40, I, I learned to play the song Canon in D on the piano. I could read the music and play the song. When I was 50-ish, I started to learn how to play the bass. And so now that I've turned 60, I thought, what would be a really good skill for a guy that's moving into the peak of his life, the apex? Why are you laughing? <coughs> so I thought, what would be a really good skill for a guy like me to learn how to do? And so I came up with one. And so I thought, you know, a good skill for me to learn that I haven't learned up to this point is how to multitask. I know. Like, it's hard enough for a man to learn this skill when he's young and has all of his faculty about it. So I decided I'd start giving it a try. And lo and behold, I've kind of almost got it mastered. I can multitask kind of now. And here's how I've learned how to do it. I can eat my dinner and watch TV at the same time. I'm just telling you. I'm all over this stuff. This past week, um, the, the world celebrated the 75th anniversary of D-Day. It was an amazing moment when Allied forces gathered together and made the biggest land and uh, air assault on, in a war situation. And, and, and it, it, it came to that place where there was an estimated... 4,414 deaths of young men on June the 6th, 1944, on the beaches of Normandy. And 2,500 of those that were killed were Americans. And it was a solemn moment because it was, it was this place where we remember what took place on a horrific day in our history. It was this mind-blowing thought that evil was about ready to overthrow the good of this world. But the people of this world came together to battle evil and the wickedness of Hitler and his regime. And on that day, we turned the tide and on the brink of evil, good overpowered and righteousness came to, to the foreground and justice triumphed over this wickedness. But it cost lives. There was lots of blood shed so that we would know the freedom that we have. Now, 75 years later, we're facing a whole new series of wickedness, of a whole new uh, idea and thought of things that are, are threatening the good of this world. And, and it's on the front lines of morality. And it's ranging from the whole thing of killing the unborn or those already born but are helpless. To the whole fact that, that there are people who are 
redefining what marriage looks like. Instead of saying marriage is between one man and one woman as God ordained it in the beginning, now they're recreating what marriage would look like between a, a woman and a woman and a man and a man, and they're calling it right. We, we have this whole idea of people who believe that God made a mistake when He created them in the womb and gave them the wrong gender, and now what they are doing is they are going to fix God's mistake by giving themselves a different gender. And all of this stuff is pressing in on our world. Everything that we believe to be correct and good and righteous has now been flipped upside down, and it's politically incorrect to believe what we believed growing up, the things that God taught us, the things that God said, this is good, this is right, this is just. And now we've been pressed in and we've got these things, these wicked things that are taking place all around us because now we hear of the shooting that took place at Virginia Beach and we wonder to ourselves in our minds, how could this wickedness continue to prevail in our lives? What's going to happen to this country? And then at the moment when we think that... that Things couldn't get any worse. And we look to those people that we've elected as government officials to help come along and direct this country back to the place of morality, back to the place of righteousness, back to the place of justice. Our officials that we've elected, they have decided to, to push their own agenda and go for revenge. And now we've got a more divided nation than I think we've ever had before in our life. And we're all disappointed with the way our officials are not governing in our world. We're all confused by this. We, we're kind of thinking like, how has this world got so messed up? It's more messed up now than it's ever been before. Our politicians, they're not helping us to, to help other people see what is right and good and what is just. And then we look to our education system. And, and because back in the day, back in the old days, it used to be that when you went to school that you would learn about morality, that you would learn what the right thing is, that you would learn what good and justice is. But nowadays, what's being pushed in the education system isn't helping us to grow our society more towards God. It's pulling it further away from God, and we're going in the wrong direction. And so we stand here, and we throw up our hands, and we're ex ex um, exceedingly disillusioned by the way this world is moving and how life is turning out. Even though governments, institutions, and systems are part of what God does, only the gospel changes hearts. The only hope we have in the midst of what appears to be madness is the reality of the power of the gospel. And the fact that because I've read this book and I cheated and I went and looked at the back. And guess what? We win. That's the good news. We win. And so all this stuff that we have going on, all this nonsense, one day it's going to vanish. It's going to be no more. Is it going to happen in my lifetime? I don't know. And it's really not for me to know. It's not for you to know. What we need to know and the reality that we have is that it is our time right now. We've been placed here on this world 
and, 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 and to do what God has called us to do on this stage. It's our turn, our turn to be valiant. It's our turn to be prayerful. It's our turn to make war against injustice. It's our turn to bring the gospel footprint into our community. And by the way, this world has always been a mess. There's nothing new. You just, you just go read in Ecclesiastes. The, it, Solom, uh, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. So the wickedness of man's heart, we're just getting better at being wicked. Or maybe we don't mind bringing our wickedness out into the light for everybody to see. Maybe we're just a little more brazen by it. But nonetheless, it is us now. The people who were here before us, they were faithful to Jesus. And they ran out and they brought the message of, of Christ to places where it had never been before. And God took them home. And he looks at us and says, you're the next ones. You're the next ones that stand in the gap. It is our job now to stand in the gap between a holy, righteous God and a wicked and sinful world that needs a Savior. And God wants to use us to bring the gospel message and make a gospel footprint in our community where we're at. That's the call of the church. That's the call that he's been given to us. And so this morning, what I thought I would do is I would have us take a look at a guy, a king, by the name of Uzziah. Now, there's a couple of reasons I want to look at King Uzziah. First and foremost is that I find, by and large, many of us are ignorant about Uzziah. And, we, and what we want to do is we want to come to a clear understanding of it. And most of us, if we have an understanding of Uzziah, it, it comes from what Isaiah said, the prophet. Here's what Isaiah said. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, two to cover his face, two to cover his feet, and two with, with which he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Now there's two things that we're going to learn from Uzziah's life. And then there's a lesson from his life we want to learn in regard as to what not to do. I, I don't know if you feel like Isaiah a little bit because he says, woe is me for I am undone. I, I am a man of unclean lips. I live in a, in a world of people with unclean lips. And, and, and what do we do with that? Because our world seems to be falling apart and, and and we think it's, it's new falling apart. But if you take a quick history lesson of Uzziah and him growing up and becoming king of Judah, it was a time that seemed like the stable things of life were coming undone. Now let me take you back and give you a little quick 
history lesson. Because Uzziah's great, 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 great grandfather was the second king of Israel. His name was King David. We know him as the little shepherd boy that killed a big giant. We know that he took over the the kingdom from uh, King Saul and he brought God's rule to a nation. And he led with dignity. And, and, and he created a lot of the Psalms. You read the Psalms. A lot of them are, are, are given to us by David. He had a brilliant mind. He had a shepherd's heart. He had a love for God that was deep and passionate. And he passed that on to us. And then he, when he died, the throne was given to his son Solomon. And Solomon's one of those guys. He, God said that he would give him whatever he desired. And he would give him all the riches of the world. And the one thing that Solomon asked for, he asked that God would grant him wisdom beyond anybody else's comprehension. And God says, that's a great thing to ask for. So not only am I going to grant what you're asking of me, I'm going to give you wisdom beyond anybody else's capability. I am also going to give you riches untold. And then when Solomon died, he left his throne to one of his idiot sons. I know you're not supposed to say that around little kids. That's why we sent them over there. Now, what this this idiot did is he thought, you know what? Israel's paying taxes, but I want more. So he upped the taxes on his own nation as a king, and then he ruled the nation with an iron fist, and he absolutely destroyed Israel. Matter of fact, this is what it looked like. There was a division that came amongst the nation. So you had the northern kingdom called Israel, and then you had the southern kingdom called Judah. And, and, and they separated, and, and this idiot ran the northern kingdom, and what happened is, is Assyria came in, and absolutely annihilated the northern kingdom to where they were never coming back. And so all that was left was the kingdom of Judah. And when when the kingdom of Judah was being brought into existence, it, it seemed like every time they turned around, they were being attacked on every border. Huh, what do you know? Somebody had a border problem. And we think it's new. Well, it's not. But here's what happens to Judah. They only last another 100 years after the Assyrians wipe out Israel. Judah only lasts another 100 years before the Babylonians come in. And the Babylonians are the way that God brings his discipline and judgment to Judah for their sin against him. And they get hauled off into captivity and slavery for 70 years by Babylon, and the Babylonians hold them there for 70 years, and then they get released to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and start to rebuild the kingdom of Judah. And so what we're doing is we're going to pick it up just, you know, 100 years or so before uh, any of this stuff takes place. And what's going on in the kingdom of Judah, it seems like it's a lot of like the stuff that's going on in our world right now. Because like every time you turn the TV on, something else is broken. Every time we dial in, it looks like there is more injustice. There's more loss. There's more confusion. There's more violence. And I just want us to consider this morning how Uzziah navigated the world that you and I live in. 
And I want us to glean from him what is good and what is right. And I, and I want us to see in him where we need to be watchful in our own lives. And then finally, I want us to see Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament. So let's just pick it up in uh, 2 Chronicles 26, starting with verse 3. Uzziah was 16, year old, 16 years old when he began to reign. Now we can just stop there for a second. Because I know we're living in a different times, but it's really hard for me to get my, my brain around this 16-year-old um, who just became the king, right? He has complete autonomy, complete authority over a whole nation. He's 16 years old. Uzziah, you go to bed. No, you go to the dungeon. What do you tell a 16-year-old that has complete authority and autonomy over a whole nation? You kind of feel like your hands might be tied a little bit. And so what's going on is, is that we've got this happening here. And so let's, let's just keep going. Because, you know, he's, he's ascended to the throne of Judah. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoala of Jerusalem. Listen to verse 4. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. There's a lot of ayahs in here. There's Uzziah, there's Amaziah, there's Jehoaziah, there's Mattaziah, and Mattaziah, and Philaziah, and Cody Aziah. My son-in-law just informed me that he's one-third Jewish. So we have to give him a Jewish name. I told him last night, I said, I've got a good Jewish name for you. And he goes, He's really excited about it. He goes, what's my Jewish name? I said, Nimrod. <laughs> so the first thing I want to look at concerning Uzziah as the king of Judah is how he navigates a really broken, messed up world. He, he be, the first thing he does is he begins to humble himself and to learn. And we see here, first and foremost, he learned from his father what Amaziah did. Now, I'm going to tell you why this is important. It's because his father, listen, his dad was not the sharpest tool, knife in the, in the drawer. He wasn't the lightest, brightest light bulb in the shed. He wasn't playing with a full deck of cards. His elevator didn't go to the top. I could go on if you want me to, but I think you get the picture, right? This guy messed it up. So here's how I want you to see how he messed it up. In, in 2 Chronicles 25, 1, it says, Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now that sounds all really familiar, except for this one thing. We come to this comma, and here's what it says. Yet not with what? A whole heart. You see, he's got his daddy, who is the king, and his daddy is out there doing stuff, 
And, and his daddy is, is this guy who's only seeking God half-heartedly. He's not seeking him with his whole heart. And when you seek the things of God with the pressures of this world and the brokenness of this world, half-heartedly, eventually, it renders us no-hearted about the things of God. So what Amaziah, Uzziah's daddy, thinks is the right thing to do is that he gathers up all these idols because he's just defeated these nations like the Ammonites. And, and he goes and he grabs the Edomites, um, all of their idols, and he brings these Edomites' idols back to Jerusalem, and he takes them up to the temple in Jerusalem, and he sets them out before him, and he starts to worship these idols. You see the irony in this. These are the idols of the, the countries he just conquered. These idols were supposed to protect these countries from guys like Amaziah, and yet Amaziah's God, Yahweh, gave him the victory over these dumb idols, and now he's starting to worship the dumb idols instead of the true and living God. Not that, brother. So God's not very happy with what's going on here. God's actually quite unhappy with this. He's displeased with this. And so in his right and good justice, God removes Amaziah from the throne. And this little 16-year-old just learned how to drive a chariot, Uzziah, ascends to the throne. I mean, he got his learner's permit, then he got his license on the chariot, and he's driving it around the walls, and he's going, right? Learning how to do a tail slide, the whole nine yards. And now they said, by the way, dude, you're now the king. And he's like, whoa, dude, chill. And so what I want us to do is, here's something I just, I marvel at, and I consider this. How many of you would say, I learned some really good stuff from my dad? Put your hand up. Everybody's hand should go up, because we can learn at least one really good thing from our dad. Now, listen. Here's the next thing I want you to notice. Take a look around at this. How many of you would say, I learned some bad stuff from my dad? Put your hand up. Now, uh, listen, don't be a, my kids are sitting right there. They got their, I mean, they're as high, higher than anybody else. They go, look right here. Yep, my dad, that guy up there, he messed me up. Get a therapist and get over it. That's all I have to say about that. But here's the thing is, is that, that, All of us, our dads taught us some good stuff, and our dads taught us some bad stuff. You know? And so, you know, here's what the, here's dad, right? He's he's got this going on. He's got the good and the bad. So here's what Uzziah says. He goes, I'm taking a look because I know when my pops is messing up. When you're 16 years old, you already know when you watch your dad, your pops, you're watching him do stuff, you go like, that's bad, that's the wrong thing to do. I know better than that, and I'm not going to follow in those steps. And so what, what good old Uzziah says is, uh, no bueno on the bad stuff. And so he's not going to hang in there and deal with the bad stuff. He's going to like, forget that. I'm going to do something different about this. And so what he does is he sets out in his idea, he says, I'm going to walk in my dad's strengths. 
I'm going to avoid his weaknesses. And then from there, the Bible tells us that he finds this guy whose name is Zechariah, and he wants to be trained, and he wants to be trained in something very specific. He wants to be trained in the fear of God. And so he finds this, this guy, Zechariah, and he says, I want you to mentor me. I want you to train me in what it means to fear the Lord. You know, another term for that is disciple. He wants to be discipled in the things of God because he looked at his daddy and goes, my daddy, he was good on some other stuff, but when it came to spiritual things, he was out to lunch. He missed the boat. He, he, he couldn't get it put together. And so I don't, want, I don't want my dad making my life this way. I want to be mentored by somebody. I want someone to disciple me on what it means to have the fear of the Lord. And, and you know what happens when you fear the Lord? You grow in the fear of the Lord. There are two things you will actually grow in, as I see it from the Word of God. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then in Proverbs 14.26, and listen, I can do this all day long. I can pull out verses all day long to talk about the fear of the Lord, but I'm just pulling two of them out just for time's sake. 14.26, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children have refuge. So there are two pieces, there's two strengths that begin to be developed in the heart of someone who is growing and being trained in the fear of God, in the fear of the Lord. The majesty uh, of God, the size of God, the scope of His sovereignty and the power and creates two things in the hearts of those who are His. It creates, first of all, wisdom and knowledge and then it's like we go to God, we go, you know, and I don't know. So I'm going to submit to who you are, and, and I'm going to submit to that. And then the second thing it creates, it creates courage. It creates courage because God is God, and who can stay God's hand, right? Nobody can go like, God, I'm going to hold you back on this one. God's going to do what he wills to do because he's God and you are not. So if I'm a child of the king, if I, and, and if I want to fear God, then I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, then I am an adopted son of his, and if I'm an heir to the promise, and if I've inherited new heavens and new earth, and if I get unfettered access to God, what do I have to fear? What could you do to me? Kill me? Okay, you could kill me. But that's okay with me, because guess what? To die is gain. To live is Christ. Right? So I, like, bring it on. You can't do anything to me uh, on the physical sense that's going to be that big of a deal to me. Uh, you'll go to jail. So, th but that's all right. Um, you can push me out to the margins. But what can you possibly take from me? You can't take my faith from me. You cannot take God from me. You cannot take my salvation from me. So now I start to grow in confidence. And when you grow in confidence... You start to see God as he really is. And the Lord produces confidence in us. It, it's God that's producing this confidence. And he's not producing the confidence in who I am. He's producing the confidence in that who he is works in me. And so when we see the confidence of this, he produces confidence also in our faith. But not in our faith, the object of our faith being God.
So our confidence grows in that God is able, God is willing, God is at work, God will win. And ultimate victory belongs to the Lord and our confidence begins to grow. So now you have Uzziah who has set his mind and his heart to pursue God. But how does he do that? He's learning the good and the bad he sees. He's picking them up. He's paying attention. And he's found someone and he says, teach me to fear God. Teach me his size. Teach me his scope. I don't want to talk about me. I don't want to, I want to talk about God. I want to see him majestic. I want to see him marvelous. And I want him to grow in me. So help me to see God for who he is. He's starting to grow in wisdom. He's starting to grow in knowledge. And he's growing in confidence. The image of the early reign of the king of Judah is one of a guy who is on his knees crying out to God, pouring over and digging into the word of God and being inflamed, emboldened by what he finds there. Being inflamed and emboldened by the God whom he trusts. Then one of the things I want to fight for as long as God gives me breath is this weak notion that piety somehow equals passivity. That if you're a pious man, if you're a pious woman, that somehow that equals this weird, quick meekness where you just cross your fingers and you hope that God will come through. Because that's definitely not what we see in the Bible. In fact, pious men and pious women, when you look at them in the Bible, they're fierce. You don't want to mess with those folks. They've got something that you don't have. They've got something that's growing inside of them. They've got this knowledge of God. They've they've got this, this thing working inside of them where their confidence is growing. And so Uzziah, he gets up off of his knees. He closes the Torah. He's filled with the word of God and blown away by the majesty of God. He rejects passivity and he gets to work. Rarely do I find myself thinking of myself lazy. There are days when I know I'm a little bit lazy. But when I look at what Uzziah does, when he gets to work, I'm thinking, I'm wasting my life. This guy is getting stuff done. And so he, he, he does this, you know, he's, he's I'm, I'm with God. He says it's kind of quasi-amen, and then this is what happens. He went out and made war against the Philistines. He broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabneth and then the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the uh, Munites and the Ammonites um, paid tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds both in the Shephla and in the plain. And he had farmers and vineyards in the hills and fertile lands. And this is the part I really like. Listen to what the next thing it says. For he loved soils. He liked getting a little dirt under his fingernails. He probably rubbed it in his hands and would smell earth. And he'd go, 
oh yeah, that's good dirt right there. I can grow something with this. And moreover, Uzziah had many soldiers fit for war in divisions according to numbers of the muster. And he had these three guys under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. And if I were to take that sentence, it would almost need a diagram where I would be drawing all kinds of X and O's and stuff and it would look like a football play. And so let me just go on to the next couple of verses because it says, The whole number of heads of fathers' houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. Under their command was an army of 307,500. Half of Wyoming are these guys who could make war with mighty power. That should make you a little bit fearful if you saw those cats coming down the road. And they were to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, get this, he made machines invented by skillful men to be on towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread, for he was marvelously helped. What we see happening in Uzziah's life is if you have a man who's walking in humility, who's, who's learning, who's putting himself under the word of God to grow in fear of God, to look at God marvelously and majestic, to feel the glad-heartedness and confidence that comes from feeling small in size to God and, and the might of God. And then with calloused knees, he closes the word that is now in his heart and he begins to look across to Judah and he sees injustice and he sees threats and he sees needs and he gets to work. That's what he does. He begins to, where God placed him as king of Judah, push back what is dark where, where he was planted. See, here's the thing about it. We bloom where we are. We bloom where God plants us. As the king, he starts to push back. He starts to create. He starts to leverage his authority. He begins to push back those who would make war against God's peoples. He begins to provide food. He begins to provide drink. He begins to build ranches and plant vineyards and plant gardens so people might be fed. He begins to have this life wrung out to establish the type of human flourishing that occurs when people of God submit to the will of God. That's a man who gets to work on behalf of God. That's the man who knows to fear God. That's the man who's leaving a legacy to his family. And although his knees were calloused, he doesn't just stay in the prayer room. He gets into the mess. He gets into the grind. He gets into the fight. So my earnest hope is that you would be men and women who love the prayer closet, who cry out to God to move and to work. But might we also get into the fray? So what, is that, what does it look like? Where do you start? What do you, how do we think about that? Where does our mind go? Where is your heart going? The reason that I said providentially something's at work is because God is at work in our hearts to reveal things we'd like to think aren't there. So we pay attention. Then we engage emphatically. And what moves us then into relationships? because we are blooming where we're planted. 
And the reason that we can bloom where we're planted is because of this theological term. Now, I told you I was really working hard on multitasking. I cannot talk to you and write this word down at the same time and not misspell it. So, shh. Get it right, Simon. Immutability of God. That's a big 10-cent word right there. But it's a great word for us to understand. What, how is God immutable? It means that God never changes. His character never changes. His attributes never change. His thoughts about us never change. His love for us never changes. Everything he has for us is because he is immutable. And so he is also, then I would say, unchanging. That's God. And that's why we have this, we can, we can bloom where we've been planted, where we can blossom. Because we have a God who is going to be the same forever. In James 1.17 it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We can trust God in His fullness to be consistent, fully dependable, unmoving in who He is. So when we see God acting, creating, loving, caring, growing, disciplining in the Old Testament... He did the same thing in the New Testament. And what he did in the New Testament, he's doing today in our lives, in this church, in this community. Because he's the same guy yesterday, today, and forever. That's who our God is. So now let's look at back at verse 15. It says, In Jerusalem he made these machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped. And again, there's a comma. Until he was, what? Strong. Now, we know strength isn't an issue because the Bible has repeatedly said in this chapter that he was strong, and that was a really good thing. But there's a different kind of strength now going on in Uzziah. And we see that in verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah, the priest, went in after him and 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, they stood withstood King Uzziah. Now again, this whole thing that piety is passivity paradigm is absolutely blown away because everybody thinks the priests are these little monk guys who walk around with their hands in the robe and, and you know, they're going to take a slap on the face and turn the cheek the other way. You do it to one of these priests and they're going to pull out a sword and they're going to cut you from your groin to your gullet. They'll, wide, they'll split you up. And so there's 80 of these guys and they're standing in front of the king and they're going... You shall not pass. Remember that one? And, and so here he is. He's there, and, and, and he's, he's going to do what he wants to do. It says, And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, 
It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. That comes from Exodus 30. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring no honor from the Lord to you. Then Uzziah, here it is, hang on, i got to turn the page, was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, get that, angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Anger. You see how God deals with anger? Now there's righteous anger and there's misplaced anger. Now, here's what's happened. We've got Uzziah who's been trained in the fear of the Lord who saw injustice, who saw need and worked hard and dreamed big and began to grind it out for the glory of God, but somehow began to feel confident that he was the one who made all of this happen. When that happens, once the switch flips, the way we think and interact gets broken. Once we think more highly of ourselves, than we ought to. Once we start to take the credit where the credit is not due, once that switch gets flipped, it breaks relationships, and it breaks relationship with God first and foremost. So the, there are two things that become apparent here. The first is, is that Uzziah has forgotten who he is. He's forgotten who he is. What does this mean? He's the king. He's not the priest. God said, you're the king. I'm going to make you great as the king. You do what I tell you to do. You will prosper at being the king. He became the king. He became great. He became strong. He became proud. He became arrogant. And he said, who's going to stop me going, going to the temple of the Lord and burning incense on the altar of the Lord? I'm the king of Judah. Look what I've accomplished. And he starts to go. Well, I'll tell you who's going to stop him. The priest and 80 other men with the valor stood and barred the way, wouldn't let him through. Because what has happened is, is this man, this king, he's lost self-awareness. And when you lose self-awareness, you have no idea how your behavior affects others. And you think God should conform to you rather than you conform to God. Well, I know what, what God said. But like, you know what? God should be really happy to have me on his team, after all. Like, who's going to do it if I'm not here? That's the thought. God's like, oh, son, let me help you out with this. The second thing almost always happens when you lose, lose self-awareness is God is big and you're small, but now we are big. And God is small. And the fear of the Lord that was in him has dissipated. It has left. And once that happens, hearing a rebuke becomes impossible. Why? Because you're the man. You're the guy that did all this stuff. And, you, and, and, and it, it's that Uzziah gets leprosy. And it's interesting when he gets leprosy. When he gets angry with the priests. Because the priests are the one that said, no. This is not right. This is sin against God. Leave now, and you're going to be okay. Take 
drop the incense where, where you stand, turn around, walk out of the sanctuary, go to the outer court, take your sin with you, confess your sin to God, ask Him to forgive you. And because God is a gracious God, and because God is a loving God, and God is a forgiving God, He will forgive you your sin. But He did not respond to the, to the, the, the uh, priests as they talked to Him. He had His chance to put it down and to leave. But he burned with rage. And he's probably thinking, who's this priest to talk to me like this? Has the priest conquered with armies? Has the priest planted vineyards? Has the priest built towers? Has the priest put an army of 307,500 men together? What has the priest done for Judah? So he grows in his rage. When you're found out in your sin, one of two things will happen. You will grow angry and broken at your sin or you will grow angry at the one who brought your sin to your attention. Those who have been trained in the fear of the Lord are walking in it, and they will receive the rebuke, they will process the rebuke, and then they will repent. Those who do not and are not, those are the ones who maybe are half-hearted in their allegiance to Jesus. And they will almost argue with the process or argue with the one who brought the news or justify the fact that their behavior is not sin because uh, look at all the good things that I have done. So here's where we land in our half-heartedness. And we will be either in, land in one of two places. And legalism, Antonianism, something like that, you heard me. This one, legalism, it says that God is in my debt. I've performed, I've done great, I've done all these things. That's Uzziah. Look, God, look what I've done. I've taken care of the nation, I've grown the nation, I'm this great guy, look what all I've done. God, you owe me now. You owe me the ability to go down to the temple and to take the incense down there and put it on the altar and to, and to have that position. And God says, no, that is not. You forgot who you are. You're the king, you're not the priest. That is not what your job is. I planted you here for you to blossom here. You are not planted there. You stay right here and blossom where you're at. You see? And so he thinks, he thinks that God is in his debt. The other one is that we have this willingness to disobey God. Because we really don't believe that the, 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 the commandments of God apply to us. We really think that it, it, it is, we're above that. And so we can, we can have this quasi-relationship with God because we don't have to live in obedience to God. And so here's what happens. Legalism is far more than just the conscious belief that I, I can be saved by my good works. It's a web of attitudes and of the heart and character. It is the thought that God's love is, unconditioned, is, is conditioned 
on something that we can do or be. It is the attitude that I can offer certain things, my ethical goodness, my relative avoidance of deliberate sin, my faithfulness to the Bible and the church that supports Christ's work and, and contribution to God's goodwill towards me. A legalistic spirit a legalistic spirit leads to bringing ungenerous, harsh, overly sensitive to criticism, deeply insecure and jealous of others because our sense of personal identity and worth has become entwined with our performance and it is um, a, and its recognition rather than being rooted and grounded in Christ and his unmerited grace towards us. Antonianism is too just more than just a formal belief that I don't have to obey God's law. It is the thought that since God loves me regardless of my record, he doesn't mind how morally or immorally I live. It's the attitude that God so accepts me as I am. He only wants me to be myself. And oftentimes this can metastasize into the belief that the only way to be free is to jettison belief in God completely. And that was the other shoe that Uzziah was wearing. I want to give you the good news in this because you remember Uzziah when he got angry with the priest, God's wrath was poured out upon him, his judgment. And he had leprosy on his head. He spent the rest of his life in isolation from everybody else. In 1 Peter, he wrote this. He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For we were straying like sheep, but, now, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, here's what happens in this verse, is what Peter's telling us. Is we're just like Uzziah. We've been planted here, and God's going to prosper us to do and have a footprint the way that he's created us in here. But we look over there and we say, I want to be that guy. I want to be that gal. I want to have this, and I want to have that. And, and God's going to come back to me, come back to where I want you to be. And we look at God and we shake our fists and we say, you owe me. You owe me. And God lovingly has Jesus there on the cross taking our wrath poured out for us, but he takes it. He's our wrath bearer. That is what Uzziah did not have. That's what the people of the Old Testament were always looking for. They're saying there's got to be someone who's going to bear the wrath of God on our behalf. And God says, I have that someone. He's my son, Jesus, and he's going to go on the tree and I'm going to pour out all my wrath on all the sin of the world at one time so that you can be free. That's what this table signifies. That's what we're going to gather around and celebrate. This is a celebration time because we look at it, we look at the cup that represents the blood of Jesus that has covered us, we've taken our sin completely away, removed it as far as the east is from the west. That is the blood that was shed for us. The, the, the bread represents the, the blood. The bread represents 
Christ's body that was given for, that bore the wrath of God, that took the leprosy for us. So here's what I want to end with today. Is that you need to learn the good stuff from your dad. Every one of us. We've got a dad. We need to take an intentional look at our dad's life and say, what are the good things I need to implement? Then say no to the bad. Say, I'm never going to walk down that path. Then find a mentor. Find someone who is willing to work with you, to disciple you, to teach you the fear of the Lord. I, here's a 16-year-old kid who's going like, I don't have this. I don't get it right. I need someone to lead me. I know 50-year-old men that are going like, I don't need anybody. I got this. I got this covered. I'm a smart enough guy. I can handle this on my own. You try to do anything spiritually in your life on your own, guess what it's called? Half-hearted. We all need a mentor. We all need people in our lives to speak truth. I'm, I'm just going to infomercial time. That's why we have small groups in this church. That's why we have life groups in this church. Because we mentor, we disciple one another. We grow in our faith. We grow in our love. And so in the fall, when we kick these things off again, you keep this in the back of your mind. I want to be a part of a small group so that my life, so that I will be mentored. Or find someone, ask someone. Listen, I'm going to tell you the truth, and I hate to tell you this. I'm not that guy. I've got one guy that I can mentor. We're doing this with our elders. Just, I, I want you to know, the elders are leading the way in this. We have elders, and then we have apprentice elders. And every one of our elders is assigned apprentice elder to mentor, to disciple. And that's what we're doing. We're setting an example at the leadership level for you because this is what we want you to do. We want you to be intentional about this. The, second, the next thing I want you to remember is remember who you are. You're small and God is great. And remember that. Listen to the rebuke of the Spirit. Process it and repent. And then finally, live in the grace of Jesus who is your wrath bearer. Amen? Our Father, as we get in the next few minutes ready to partake of this cup, of this bread, remind us once again that your Son bore the wrath of our sin on the tree, you bore the wrath for us, Jesus. You shed your blood. You gave your life so that we might walk in fullness. We might walk in humility. We might walk in the knowledge of who you are. That we would, we would be disciplined in the fear of God. Let Uzziah be a great teaching moment for us in our lives. We ask in Jesus' great name.